Hallelujah. Father, we are here in the name of Jesus gathered to celebrate and to greater appreciate the great salvation that you have secured for us through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. All glory be to our Savior, our Sovereign, our Messiah, our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we thank you that his glory is made manifest in our lives by transforming us by the Spirit, by the Word, by a sovereign work of regeneration. We thank you that his glory is seen and his providence upholding all things by the word of his power. We thank you that his glory is seen in that all of history is moving according to your predestined plan and your prophetic realities in scripture unto the closing of his kingdom and the inauguration of the great new heavens and new earth reality of history redeemed in future glory. We thank you, Father, that today as we open your scriptures, we see the windows of your purposes open, not only for our lives, but for all of this world. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a deep desire to know them more closely and to apply them more consistently, proclaim them more boldly in order that we might bring more glory still to your holy name. At your table today, we celebrate that our sins are atoned. We pray that you would be, see fit, Lord, to bless this service and the partaking of that which represents the body and blood of Christ our Lord, so that it might nourish not just our body, but our souls with the reality that partaking in Christ and His work on our behalf yields eternal life and salvation. For this we are thankful. I pray finally in the preaching of the Word today that you would be glorified and your Spirit would use this means today not only to strengthen the believer in his faith, but to convict the lost that there be any within the hearing of this message that you would cause them to be aware of their sin and to be horrified at the thought that they have transgressed the holiness of an almighty God, that they may turn from their sin, turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, and profess faith in his blood alone as a sufficient atonement for every sinner. Thank you, Jesus. Give us grace, Lord, now as we open your word to hear and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm thankful this morning that the Lord has gathered us in His name. And what a great opportunity we have to exalt Him, to glorify Him, and to set our attention upon His holy word. I'd encourage you to do that with me today by turning to Jude. And we've been going through this book on Communion Sundays for some weeks. I think this is sermon number six. We'll consider several verses, 16 through 23, in our next few messages, Lord willing, along these lines. And under the title today, You Must Remember. Jude tells us that we must remember, beloved, he refers to the church and by extension to us, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are things we must remember from the teaching of Scripture in order for us to stand in a day when our faith is challenged. And I'm sure you can agree with me that applications of Jude are fitting for the circumstances that we ourselves face right now. The aim of this morning's message is to notice the distinctions between the holy and the ungodly that Jude expands upon, to broadcast these, and by so doing, to equip us for good discernment, to understand enemies of the church, to oppose them, and to uh, strengthen our own faith in allegiance with our Lord and Savior. With that, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today? With your heart open and your Bible to Jude, let us consider verses 16 through 23, Hear now the word of the Lord. These are grumblers' malcontents, following their own sinful desires. 
They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. We've taken the final verse as our organizing theme for the book of Jude in preaching. This verse reads, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be four things, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. This is the overarching proclamation that Jude makes, the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, inasmuch as His majesty, dominion, and authority extend to all and over all. In light of this, Jude is concerned to equip the church to oppose any that might stand against or in opposition to the things that he has proclaimed about our Lord and Savior, along with the testimony and counsel of all the scriptures. And in the interest of providing the church with means to discern the authority of Jesus Christ, Jude's epistle highlights distinctions between the holy and the ungodly. That is, if we understand the difference between those who are aligned with the holy, Jesus himself and his word, and the ungodly, those who are enemies of the Lord and his faith, this will better equip us to oppose and to discern anyone or any idea who would deny or diminish the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ. Jude, in making these distinctions, he draws sharp lines between the disruptive and the sincere, between the holy, as we mentioned, and the ungodly between enemies and allies within the visible church and its scope of operations. Jude understands in this way, we see implied in his epistle that he understands it is the enemy of the Gospels, it is in the enemy of the Gospels' best interest to blur the lines of sound moral judgment, the true teaching of the glory and authority of Jesus. And this is all... Uh, the ungodly and Satan himself, with a goal to corrupting the body of Christ. He therefore opposes this nefarious strategy, Jude does, with clarity and distinctions. And his goal is to equip us to do the same. He has said again in another purpose for writing statement, verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. It is to stand for the faith, to fight for it, that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in contending by extension, we understand Jude to mean that we stand for Christ and against his enemies. He therefore opposes this nefarious strategy to blur the lines between the unholy and the ungodly. And in this way, Jude's letter equips the church, equips the church of all ages, both in the time he writes and in our day as well, to contend, to stand for the faith when challenged, no matter the threat. The threats to the church today feel formidable, for sure. They felt formidable in the first century as well. 
in some ways, just analyzing them from the outside looking in. One would think the threat against the church at that time was much greater than we face today. Certainly their numbers were minuscule compared to those who confess Christ in our hour. This should give us faith and hope. The tools that Jude equipped the church with were sufficient to guard the church, even under greater threat, let's say. So therefore, we can, by extension, realize that these are sufficient for us today as well. For aid in studying these verses today, 16 through 23, I suggest we might draw two columns in our notebook, so to speak. This is what I did in my study. I labeled those two columns, the ungodly on the one hand, and then the second column, the holy. So there are nine phrases we might say or we might uh, organize Jude's thoughts in these verses underneath the ungodly. So these define or describe or are associated with the enemies of the church and of the gospel. And they are the following. This is just a brief overview. We'll cover just two of these today. The ungodly, according to Jude, are grumblers and malcontents. Number two, they follow their own sinful desires. Number three, they are loudmouth boasters. Four, they show favoritism to gain advantage. Five, they are scoffers. Six, they follow ungodly passions. Uh, and seven, they cause divisions. Eight, they are worldly people. And finally, nine, they are devoid of the Spirit. So that's column one, the ungodly. And then with that notebook page in your mind, under the second column, under holy, we might arrange nine phrases as well. These phrases have one descriptor, and the rest are exhortations, instructions for us to act. So again, whereas the ungodly are everything we just mentioned, the holy are, number one, the beloved. Multiple references, Jude loves that term, the beloved, to describe the church. And the following are exhortations. Remember the predictions of the apostles. We'll cover those two today. Number three, build up their most, the most holy faith. Four, pray in the Spirit. Five, keep yourselves in the love of God. Six, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. Seven, have mercy on those who doubt. Eight, save others by snatching them from the fire. And nine, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So those are our two columns side by side. And so my proposal is, is that when you match these up, there's a clear contrast. Whereas God's enemies are X, God's allies are Y, if you will. So taking the first match, we'll just cover two of these matches, if you will, today, these contrasts. Taking the first one, we might put it this way. Whereas the ungodly, the enemies of the church, are grumbling malcontents. On the other hand, the true church are the beloved. So let's give a, let me give you a heading and let's consider this a little more closely and in context, and as is our pattern in Jude, seek to draw from the greater context of Scripture to grasp the weight of what he has proclaimed in his epistle. Here's the heading. Jude emphasizes distinctions or differences between the following. Grumbling malcontents on the one hand and the beloved on the other. This is the difference. He's drawing sharp lines. He is making, he's drawing attention to that which is opposed, again, to the glory, majesty, and authority of Jesus, grumbling malcontents, and those who endorse and seek to live in light of those four things, the beloved, the true church. So what do grumblers and malcontents sound like? So if, you, if I ask you for a definition of grumbling, I'm sure someone might say complaining, mumbling under one's breath, uh, son, it's time to do your chores. At our house, we have a few goats. 
And so each day someone needs to go out, gather the hay, put it for them to feed, change out their water, etc. Well, kids, you know that chores aren't always the most fun thing to do. It's like, oh, it's not my turn. It's my brother's turn. It's my sister's turn. I did it last night. So this is a form of grumbling. And yes, it expresses a, a, an extent of discontent. But I suggest it's a minor example of grumbling. What Paul means, or I'm sorry, Jude means when he characterizes the ungodly by complaining, grumbling, and malcontents, he has something much more serious in mind. Now let me hasten to add, to the degree that grumbling against your parents is dishonoring them, it indeed is a serious thing. But the grumbling that uh, Jude refers to most likely goes back to references he has in mind from the Old Testament. And just to make this case a little stronger, let me go give a callback in Jude, a few verses back, to a situation he describes in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Paul, or Jude, excuse me, is reminding the church of a pattern of God's judgments and distinctions and discrimination, if you will, between the ungodly and the holy as a pattern of his character applied throughout history. In other words, there are examples in the Old Testament where God separated his enemies from his allies and made those lines, drew those lines very clear. One example he points to is that Jesus, as God, Yahweh himself, accompanying the people out of Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. And when we go back and find the examples that Jude is referring to, we find in many cases that they are accompanied by grumbling and discontent. For example, Numbers 14. So turn there to the book of Numbers with me as you're able, and we'll touch on a few examples. What do grumblers and malcontents sound like? Well, the book of Numbers answers. And what is arguing in con or what is grumbling in context? Well, in short, if we look to these examples in the Old Testament, we might, uh, sub we might conclude that grumblers or grumbling or discontent expressed in could boil down to basically arguing with or taking issue with God. Grumbling is arguing with and taking issue with God. And uh, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, Jude says, and then we might ask, destroyed them for what? And the answer in context of Numbers 14 and other passages, Jesus destroyed his enemies for discontented grumbling. For instance, in Numbers 14, in verse 13, listen. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians, or let me back up to 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done for them? The Lord continues, verse 12, speaking directly to his servant Moses. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a great nation a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, why is the Lord so upset? And why is he expressing his intent to judge his people in these terms? Well, verse 2 gives the answer. Verse 1 and 2, Then all the congregation raised up a loud cry, grumbling discontent. The people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled, there's that word, against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. 
Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So notice here, when they are contravening, they're going against, disagreeing with Moses and his authority and his leadership, God had directly and expressly placed Moses as an authority, a delegated a servant of his over them to lead him in his ways. So when they begin to grumble against this, they're grumbling not against Moses, first and foremost, but against God. They're taking issue with the Lord, who had saved them from Egypt and provided them for them miraculously through the course of their wilderness wanderings. Having discovered giants in the land, that's the context of this passage, the people are ready to stone Joshua and Caleb simply because of their courage and their faith. This is something that happens often in a culture that wants to reduce everyone to the lowest common denominator of faithless rebellion. As soon as someone like a church or a group or an individual, a Christian, wants to stand up where an idea is challenged upon the authority, the glory, the majesty, and the dominion of Jesus Christ, there will be among the grumblers and malcontents a desire to shut them down. Stone those guys. They say that we should go into this land full of giants and faith that God will lead us. And we are out here, a pitiful band. We have very few swords, little uh, ability uh, to defend ourselves. We have no military experience. We have no great general. We've never been a nation for 400 years. What are these idiots saying? Stone them, stone them. And this is the attitude of the people. They, are taking, they declare as their enemies those who stand in confidence upon the word of God and have faith that God will protect them even in the face of great trial, hardship, and enemies. They'd rather than, rather than take the chance to go into a dangerous area believing that Lord would protect them, they'd rather kill the men and, uh, who suggested doing such a thing. And this is the reason for the Lord's judgments that he will bring against them and his anger. Now the story continues with Moses interceding on their behalf. But he intercedes for them not by saying, these people aren't that bad. Come on, don't overreact. Nope. He says, in order, it says, they will tell the inhabitants of this land, in verse 14, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your clouds stand over them, and you go before them in a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of fire by night. Verse 15, now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness." Do you notice the appeal that Moses makes to intercede on behalf of the, pe of the people? It's not based on the people. They're really not that bad. They deserve to be saved. No, it's based on an appeal to the glory of the Lord. Don't kill these people because uh, the surrounding nations will assume that you in your power don't have the ability to bring them in. Moses represented the opposite of grumbling and complaining. The grumblers and malcontents, they challenge the glory, the majesty, the authority, and the dominion of the sovereign God. But those who stand with the Lord, like Moses in his heart expressed here, they realize that the glory of the Lord is paramount. And they base their prayer, their confidence, their decisions, and orient their lives accordingly. So here we have these two columns, the ungodly 
and the holy. And we see it illustrated in these times of grumbling and discontent and the contrast of the faithful, in this instance, Moses and Aaron standing, uh, interceding on behalf of the people in spite of their gross and uh, sin. In uh, chapter 16, as we continue to read in Numbers, we have the account here of Korah's rebellion. What has Jude told us? He says that the enemies are those who walk according to Korah's rebellion. Remember, we have the way of Cain, we have a Korah's rebellion, we have Balaam's error. These are incidents, incidents in history that characterize unbelief and the enemies of the church and a mindset that does not glorify or honor the Lord as an enemy of his rather than an ally. In verse 16, we won't touch on this very, uh, at any length today because we've covered it recently, but you remember the story. Korah staged a rebellion uh, once again against the authority of Moses. And he gathered for himself a following to oppose him. And uh, what we see here is that this uh, instance was accompanied by grumbling as well. Here again, in, they assembled together uh, themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Who do you think you are, Moses? And Moses, like our last example, fell on his face and sought the Lord. Here again in number 16, we see in verse 11 that this occasion, this rebellion, or this rebellion uh, was occasioned by grumbling as well. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And the answer, of course, being God's appointed high priest. So the lack of faith of the people and their anger and rebellion expressed itself in grumbling, arguing with God and taking issue with him. And God, just like Jude referenced, Jesus, in fact, uh, destroyed his enemies in this case. And kids, do you remember what happened to destroy Korah and his followers? Anybody remember what happened? Very good. The earth opened up and swallowed up all of the unbelievers. And in this way, God, in that supernatural act of judgment, destroyed the grumbling malcontents so that the only people who were left on top of the ground after that event came, as also accompanied by a fire that came out of the earth and incinerated a bunch of idolaters, the only people left were those who had aligned themselves with the word of God and his appointed leadership. And though I'm sure trembling in their boots, nevertheless, they had faith enough not to stand with the rebels of Korah, but instead to stand with Moses and with Aaron. Now, one more example as we go through Numbers. This is Numbers 21 and the fiery serpent incident. And this one is very succinct and also dramatic. Turn over to Numbers 21 and we pick up this account in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Impatient. They are not content with the Lord's timetable. They sent some grumbling coming on. Verse 5, And the people spoke against Moses and against God. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Is there no food and water? Is there, or, for there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. What happened, kids? 
You remember how God punished them at this time? He killed them, that's right. And he did so by fiery serpents, verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For what? We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray for us that he might take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. Not only do each of these um, instances represent judgment worthy of the Lord's enemies, but they also carry a gospel picture as well. And this one's obvious and it's expanded in light of what the Apostle Jude says in the New Testament. Just like that serpent was lifted up on a pole in the wilderness. So Jesus, it was necessary that he would become a curse for us. So grumblers and malcontents like you and I in our sin, who argue with God and prefer our own way over what the Lord has laid forth in his law, might look to him and live. For those who refuse to look to him, though, that was a mortal bite. It goes all the way back, some of the imagery to the garden. That serpent that holds out that tempting, you know, you can... Uh, you should, give, you should make your, uh, you should register your redress of grievances to the Lord. You have some right to advocate on your behalf. You can be like God and take issue with his word. You have the right and authority to do what you will. And Satan tempts uh, in serpent form Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, you see here that, that the lie of the serpent is dangerous indeed. It will lead to eternal death as the Lord had prophesied, unless we repent and look to him who's made a curse for us that we might be saved. And again, in these other passages, Moses is the intercessor, the priest, as it were, who goes in between and prays on behalf of the people. And so in this, he is a picture of Jesus on our behalf. So we see these lines of distinction drawn. Those who were killed by fatal snake bites, they were the ungodly. Those who looked to the, uh, to the means or the instrument of atonement and redemption. They were the holy. Those that stood with Korah and were swallowed by the ground, they were the ungodly. Those who followed Moses and affirmed the Lord and his authority and aligning themselves with his means and his provision, even in this leadership, they were the ones who survived. And likewise, all the way back, or there are many other examples. We can just leave it there. Let me just focus in, in, in chapter 21, though, on one verse, verse five, the Lord, uh, the people spoke against the Lord and against Moses. And this is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. I suggest in this one verse are three phrases that helpfully characterize what grumbling malcontents sound like. Number one, you have brought us up here to die. And what is confessed in this phrase, this grumbling, is the ways of the Lord are not trustworthy. The ways of the Lord are not trustworthy. It was the Lord that had brought them out. You have brought us here to die. We can't trust the ways of the Lord. You see, their grumbling was an argument with God and expressed a rebellion that ran deep. And they were taking issue with the Lord of glory who had saved them miraculously from the the oppression and the slavery that in their sin they deserved. And now this is how they repay him. The ways of the Lord are not trustworthy. 
This charge was based on their anecdotal emotional experience. We prefer the situation be different. Other people have it easier. It's not fair the road you've led us down. Don't you think this, these many years of wandering is enough? What are they, that's what they are, their expression of grumbling is based on. But what do they overlook when they express this heart of discontent? They overlook, they discount the entire record of God's providence. They lose the big picture. They don't retain that reckoning perspective. They forgot that there were 400 years in, in hard enslavement in Egypt. And by an undeserving act of mercy and grace, the Lord intervened to bring them out. They disregarded his direction, his means, the big picture of his purposes. They lost focus. And when they looked and cared only about their own experience, judging it against what they would prefer, then they cried out in their wicked grumbling, the ways of the Lord, in so many words, are not trustworthy. How about that second phrase? There is no food and no water. Kids, when the children of Israel were led through the wilderness, is it true that there was no food or no water? True or false? False, that's right. What was the food that God provided for the... What's that? Manna, that is correct. It is not true that there was no food or no water. What was true is it wasn't the food or water or access to the creature comforts that the people preferred, coveted, or lusted after. Instead, they disregarded what the Lord had provided, and in their no food or no water charge, they basically said that suffering is an indictment of God. The Lord has purposes of difficulty, trials, and He requires of us great lengths in this short life of endurance. And the call, uh, and the the, uh, truth, the affirmation of Scripture is that He has purpose in this. There is a reason that you will be wandering in the wilderness. It was not arbitrary. It was for a purpose. But in their grumbling, the people did not believe this. They disregarded this. And their confession was instead that this suffering, or we could even extend this to evil, was an indictment of God. If God is truly loving, if he's truly powerful, then there would be no suffering. There would be no evil. The unbeliever wields that argument the atheist or the agnostic or just the person who reserves the right to be skeptical, cynical, and criticize the Scripture's claims to the majesty, glory, authority, and dominion of Christ, they argue in such a way. But what do they do when they adopt that premise? They join the grumblers and the malcontents of old in confessing this, that any evil existing in the world or any suffering, any trial is an indictment of God, that God has no purpose in it, and I shouldn't go through it, and I have the right to deserve better. And if God is real, then life would be a bed of roses, and we shouldn't go through any hardship. Well, this is a rebellious, discontented grumbling that expresses this kind of attitude in truth. God had supplied their daily needs. He had given them manna and water from a rock. Imagine that day when Moses struck the rock with his staff and water gushed out by an absolute creative miracle. Do you think anybody was grumbling or complaining on that day? They were probably absolutely stunned and amazed at the power of Almighty God, perhaps shaken to the core and bowing in worship before him. But do you see how their confession of amazement and the spectacular miracle did not produce fruit over time? There's a difference between between being wowed in your experience and having a heart of consistent faithfulness to the Lord. And the Lord has ordained trials as one way 
to show that difference and prune the ungodly from the holy. For those who stood at this day content with the water and food that God provided, provided, they reminded themselves over and over again that God had given them food that they did not deserve and water from a rock. How could they commit such blasphemy and treason against the Almighty by forgetting and disregarding His sovereign hand? Well, people do that when they forget the big picture. One purpose of this covenant meal, the Lord's table that we have before us today, is to remember and proclaim. You see, the opposite of a heart of one who grumbles and is discontented is the beloved and those who are self-conscious of the love and the grace that God has shown them. Well, more on that in just one moment. That final verse, there's no food or no water. And then, and then finally they say, we loathe this worthless food. In this they confess that the provision of the Lord is disgusting. The Lord had provided for them, but they are disgusted with that provision. They are not satisfied with the manna He provided. I do not like your ways and means. I take issue with them and I reserve the right to criticize you. I want to register my opposition to the way you've ordered things. This is a heart of grumbling and the discontentedness that our sin will lead us to if we don't stand with the Lord. Again, the ways of the Lord are not trustworthy. Uh, there's suffering and evil is an indictment of God. The provision of the Lord is disgusting. Now against this grumbling and malcontents, we have the beloved. Who are the beloved? Well, Jude pastorally refers to his hearers as the beloved. He does so in the beginning of his book with two sets of three words. Jude, a servant, verse 1, of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are three things, called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. A triad that refers to our identity as the church, called, beloved, and kept. And then the second verse May mercy, peace, and love, another group of three or triad, be multiplied to you. So in this, Jude refers to who we are and the benefits of our covenant relationship with the Lord. We are the called, we are the beloved, and the kept. And as such, we have received mercy, peace, and love. Back to the Lord's table. At this table, we are called, and this picture here of this meal reminds us that we are the called, that we did not deserve to be in right standing or relationship with the Lord, but no, in His grace, He offered us a means of atonement and salvation, that we might look to Jesus Christ crucified on that tree for us, and that He might wash away the wickedness of our rebellious heart, even our arguing against Him. And those times when the orientation of our soul declared that the Lord's ways are not trustworthy, or that suffering was an indictment of him, or that we found his provision disgusting. We repent of all of that when we look to Christ and remember that he called us out of our sin into marvelous light, and that he did so by an awakening miracle of the Holy Spirit to see our sin for what it is and to look to Jesus, the Savior, who we need in order to be justified. We are the beloved. Why did God do this for us? We were the unbelieving, serial-killing, you know, think of the worst examples of sinful depravity you could think of, person undeserving, spitting upon Jesus and condemning him to death as a picture of the wickedness of our own heart by those who cried out, crucify him. We fall into that camp, but because the Lord first loved us, so we love him. And we are the beloved, not because we are lovely, but because God in his sovereign mercy 
sought to glorify himself, declared dominion over his sin, declared his majesty in saving us, and his uh, authority and glory in reserving for himself a people, a remnant, to praise him forevermore who did not deserve it. We are the beloved. We are the called, the beloved, and the kept. And this is encouraging for us that over time, as the trials of life come, if you continue to confess Christ and to work through your sin, to confess it as such and return to the Lord's table in faith, you have that growing assurance that the Spirit is working in you to sanctify you, to continue to will and to do of His good pleasure. You are, if you fall into this category, the beloved. This is our second column. The holy are loved by God, and by extension, we can say the holy are self-conscious of God's love for them. You might ask yourself, what is the greatest antidote for the poison of discontented grumbling? What is the greatest antidote? Well, I suggest in the context of Jude that a self-awareness of the love of God for us provides a great antidote for the poison of discontented grumbling. When we remember at the table of the Lord that we did not deserve to be saved, but Jesus shed his precious blood on our behalf, when we remember that we did not come to him of our own accord, but he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he did so by a miracle awakening our heart to salvation, we realize that we have nothing to complain about. What a treasonous thought, what a blasphemous understanding to think that we have grounds to stand on, to take issue with God. And when we consider that he has kept us in the faith over time, the last thing we desire to do is to grumble and express our discontent to the Lord. It changes the orientation of our souls to the truth. And we express at the meal, at the Lord's table, thankfulness by remembering and proclaiming what he has done for us. The Lord's table, communion, is the opposite of grumbling and complaining. It's returning in the knowledge and our profession of faith and our confession to that which we did not deserve, a tangible representation of God's absolute love for us. This is the communion connection for our message today. It's an antidote to the ungodliness that often expresses itself in discontent and grumbling. Major point number two. On column one, the ungodly, column two, the holy. The ungodly are those who follow sinful desires versus the holy are those who heed the apostolic predictions. So we see back in our scriptures that these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. That's the second phrase we've chosen to highlight there. The ungodly follow their own sinful desires. And then it goes on in verse 17. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the holy apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So side by side, whereas the ungodly follow their own sinfulness, on the other side, the holy are those who take seriously the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can turn with me to Second uh, Peter chapter 3, and for larger reference in a moment, or for greater context in a moment, to the words of the apostles that no doubt Jude refers to. But before we read from there, let, let's ask this question, what does following sinful desires look like? Well, Jude uh, has a callback in his book again to a moment in history that characterizes, it symbolizes the consequences of following sinful desires. So be in verse 7. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, Jude, in the interest of drawing distinctions between the ungodly and the holy, the, he tells us in our text today that the ungodly are those who follow their sinful desires, and then he expands that with this prior reference they are like those inhabitants, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, who in following their sinful desires, more specifically, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. And in this, they actually serve as an example of the ungodly. A couple of years ago, if you were interested in looking back to a few sermons on Sodom directly, in Genesis 19, I preached a couple messages on that moment when Lot was called by the angels out of the condemned city and how the rest of the city incurred the judgment and consequences of the Lord by the fires of heaven destroying and salting the region and even the ability to grow crops. And according to one Jewish historian, the smoke from that event still rose from that region even in the first century. This was on purpose to display the consequences of sin and it was a symbol of the eternal judgment by fire of a righteous and wrath-filled God against the unrepentant. And who is deserving of such things? Those, the ungodly, who seek to justify and pursue their natural, ungodly, natural in the sense that their sin nature, their sin nature inspired ungodly desires. Now Sodom and Gomorrah serve well to illustrate the consequences and what it looks like to follow your sinful desires. There's a whole scope illustrated there. There's Lot who had real problems, but he was a believer, all the way up to the inhabitants themselves and their uh, lust-filled rage ready to commit all kinds of horrific sin. Everything from homosexual rape to murder was overwhelming in the hearts of all ages in this society such that even after they were struck blind, they continued to act on their sinful desires. This illustrates the possible trajectory of the wickedness of the human heart. We should not take sin lightly because we see illustrated in the context of stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, the potential of <coughs> evil, danger, that the sinful heart is capable of. As I said, Lot, he was tempted by the cities of the plains. And so by association and proximity, he began to move closer and closer. God rescued him, but he saved him as by fire. Well, we should take a word of caution and warning even from Lot himself. While I was preaching on Genesis 19, I wrote a few thoughts on the biblical concept of drunkenness. Lot displayed a sort of drunkenness, literally, after they left, and his daughters committed incest with them as a result. But Lot was suffering from a sort of spiritual drunkenness as well. Until his eyes were awakened by the angels physically pulling him out of that city, he was tempted to pursue his own ungodly desires. What is this kind of drunkenness? It's a suspension of godly faculties. It's a dulling of the spiritual senses. It's a falling under the influence of our sinful nature and its unsanctified passions. It's growing lazy at our post of guarding men and husbands, especially I'm thinking of us in this context, of guarding the spiritual perimeter of our households, rendering our, because of negligence in that, by the way, rendering ourselves and our families vulnerable to the destructive and deceptive forces of Satan. Sodom, as a narrative, illustrates the consequences of sinful desire. 
from Lot's failure and passivity in this regard, though God did save him, all the way up to the worst expressions within the city itself who are destroyed by sulfur rain from glory. So that's the picture of sinful desires, what it looks like and its consequences that, drew, that Jude draws upon in his references. It illustrates that range of danger from Lot all the way to the rest of the society. This Sodom and Gomorrah was a society that doubled down on their sinful desires. They, were, they began to affirm them rather than to hide them. They came out of the closet with them and demanded that their surrounding neighbors celebrate them and cried at anyone who would take issue, including Lot himself, who are you to judge? And no doubt if they had a capital rotunda like we do, they would send their trans whatever drag dancers to celebrate their profligate, horrific, perverse immorality right in that place that is supposed to be reserved for dignified proceedings to commit horrible acts of lascivious ungodliness. We are living in an age that is trying to resurrect and promote the legacy of Sodom. In the day in which we live, we are pursuing our unnatural desires, our sinfulness, and we are codifying this kind of thing, even seeking to codify this kind of injustice by statute. It is a dangerous situation that we are playing with. We are literally playing with hellfire in the state of Minnesota. And Jude has something to say about it. He, marks, he remarks upon the danger of pursuing sinful desires and affirming the perverse anti-creation order, lustful perver, uh, desires that people seek in their sin. If we affirm those and celebrate them, and then we organize our society around them, we're asking, we're wishing for the judgment of God upon us. This is what following our sinful desires looks like. It looks like Sodom and its consequences. Now, against this, how are we to stand? Many of us feel, I'm sure, that we definitely oppose the direction that the wickedness of our legislature and our culture is heading. How are we to stand? How are we to contend for the faith in the light of this flagrant immorality that we see around us? Well, Jude answers that question. He says that the godly, the beloved, they're the ones who take seriously, they heed, they remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What kinds of predictions does he refer to? We've touched upon this as well in prior messages, but let's remind ourselves of what 2 Peter 3 says in this regard. I'm convinced that Jude is directly referring to this passage. There's so many parallels between the epistle of, epistles of Peter and the epistle of Jude, and Peter certainly being an apostle. He gave this instruction in chapter 3, verse 1 of his second letter. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Notice he uses that same term, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Similar language, direct parallel. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their sinful desires. So as we follow Peter's instructions here, he himself an apostle. We receive from him imperatives, things we must remember, things we must pay heed to in order to stand in a day like ours. <coughs> Second Peter 3, 1 through 13. Peter exhorts the church to remember, number one, secular skepticism is willful blindness. 
The skepticism of the secular God-haters is willful blindness. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Again, same motivation that Jude refers to, their sinful desires, motivates them to take issue with what God has clearly revealed. But they are willfully blind in this regard. I love the illustration, I know I've said it before, of a two-year-old or someone in that range losing all self-control yelling at the top of their lungs, incoherent babble, closing their eyes and sticking their fingers in the ear, their ears and stomping or laying on the ground and kicking as hard as they can. When a person is doing this kind of thing, they are protesting, in most cases, their parents' instructions. Are they making a good point? It's absurd. It's shameful. It's absolute rebellion exemplified. Are they aware? Are they cognizant? And are they logical? Are they reasoning? <laughs> Not in the least. They're screaming incoherent babble at the top of their lungs. Are they paying attention? No, they're closing their eyes. Are they heeding uh, reasonable words of debate and counsel and interaction? No, they're plugging their ears. And uh, is what they say and stand for worth listening to? No, it's mere screaming, incoherent, and un unreasonable speech. This is the illustration that better describes the skepticism of unbelief. Peter says that those who take issue with the sovereign are willfully blind. They cover their eyes, they plug their ears, and they scream incoherent philosophical babble in order to justify pursuing their own sinful desires. What are they blind to? They will say, verse 4, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact. This is the blindness that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So the ungodly, they confess this separate, or the, the, what we need to heed by way of instruction from the apostles is that secular skepticism is willful blindness and also we need to heed the event oracle shape of history, if you will. That is to say that the earth is obviously created and has obviously been the victim of God's judgments. And only those who are willfully blind, obstinate in their rebellion, motivated to pursue their sinful desires, refuse to see this, refuse to believe and to see the evidence that the earth was created and that it was destroyed by a worldwide flood, deservedly so, in the days of Noah. As you continue to read, Peter then draws from this the reality, the conclusion, that there is a final judgment that we can expect in the future. That is to say that these things were recorded for a reason to give a pattern of God's purposes in history and God's character interacting with man and thus the patterns that we can expect. He also tells us that the timetable of heaven is different than ours, that a thousand years are as a day to the Lord and vice versa. And in this, we are not to hold the Lord to our own perception of time, but we are to trust His perfect timing, which is a mystery to us, but certainly perfectly wise and powerful. And in the meantime, Peter goes on to tell us that there is redemptive purposes in the Lord's waiting. He has not visited, so far as I know, I haven't checked the news for a few hours, He has not visited the Capitol Rotunda, the State House in St. Paul, with the fiery sulfur rain that it deserves. So far as I know, the Capitol building isn't in flames right now. Does it deserve to be? Absolutely it does. Why has God withheld His judgment? 
Oh, it's because there is no such thing as God. He doesn't really judge as a figment of your Christian's imagination. No. The reason he has withheld his judgment is that some might come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if the Lord spares us the sulfur rain we deserve, let us be faithful. Again, this is a lot of review from, a passage, from this passage that we've covered in the past. Let us be faithful, though, to take that opportunity to call the unbeliever who is deserving of the judgments of God to repentance. And let us also take that opportunity to take more heed of what the apostles have said, to take these principles seriously, the willful blindness of the unbeliever, the fact that God is the author of Scripture, that, there, that this teaches us by recorded, documented, historical examples in Scripture that there is a final reckoning, to keep that perspective, to trust the timetable of heaven, to take advantage of the meantime for the purposes of the gospel, and to live holy and godly lives waiting for him. And this is what Peter said and Jude has echoed, verse 11. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So back to our primary text. When Jude instructs us, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I submit 2 Peter 3 is one great example. And as we heed and remember those words, take seriously these admonitions, we will be equipped to contend and to stand for the faith in our day. There are those who will justify the pursuit of their sinful desires by reordering their ideas in society accordingly as self-justification for wickedness. But there is a subset... There is a church that will stand in every age. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. And they will stand because they heed the word of God and take seriously the predictions of the apostles, the admonition and the exhortation of Jude and Peter. Jude tells us that we are those, the beloved, who celebrate the love that Christ shed, uh, showed for us in shedding his blood at what he calls love feasts. These are blemishes on your love feast, speaking of the ungodly as they feast with you without fear. We've mentioned several times as a communion application that the opposite of that is what the beloved do. They approach the table of the Lord with fear. What does that mean? They understand the weighty significance of what their sin deserved, indeed the fiery judgments of hell and Sodom. But they also understand the undeserving sacrifice that Jesus paid in order to save them. And I encourage you, per our last point on communion, even in this message, to take the opportunity of this meal spread before us to remind ourselves of the fact that we are loved and to remind ourselves of the cost that was paid by Jesus Christ in order to secure our communion with Him, our relationship with Him, the covenant bond restored with Him. This is what's represented, remembered, and celebrated at the Lord's table. When in Luke 22, 19 through 20, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, we are to remember the cost of our redemption is his shed, shed blood. As we think about this, we can make application. We can remember things like the cost of our redemption. We can remember that the Lord did not have to come according to some desire or, or some uh, demand on our behalf. 
but instead that he came according to the will of the Father to graciously and mercifully save a people that didn't deserve it. We look at what the scriptures say and we are reminded of the greatness of the Lord's love for us. This is what the love feast is. It's an enduring memorial feast of communion. This feast stretches prophetically all the way back to Exodus 12, where that memorial day of a Passover event was instituted among the generations of those who had been saved of the early believers. And it reaches all the way forward into the New Testament where Jesus says that the fulfillment of this feast was himself, that this cup is poured out for us, and it is the new covenant in his blood. And thus, this table is a recurring reminder of the sovereignty of God over sin, the sovereignty of God over salvation and in history. And in communion, we remember what the Lord has done, and we remember and proclaim that there is hope in Christ alone. Today, communion table will be open in moments for those and only for those who have confessed their sin, placed faith in Jesus Christ, and have been born again. If you have not understood the gospel and turned from your sin to Christ, the communion table is closed to you. Do not come. But if you have confessed your sin, if this sermon resonates with you as a believer, because you know that you were once lost but now are found, and the cost of that reunion with the Lord is the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, then the communion table is open. As we uh, usually do, I encourage those who are seated furthest to the back, as you're able, and if you are a believer, to file down the center aisle, receive a cup and a piece of bread and return to your seat, and then everyone successfully moving forward. Once we're all uh, seated, have received the elements, then wait and I will return and we'll partake in the Lord's table together. Welcome to the love feast of the Lord.